Every single player who's come to Michigan State since 2007 has a ring on their finger. I'm going to be a coach here for a long time. It's not over. It's just starting. But just remember, pride comes before the fall. So you might as well just come out and say what you're, what's your feeling at some point in time, because you know I can only be diplomatic for so long. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Locked on Spartans. It is Monday, September 30th, 2019. I'm your host, Will Hunter. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Locked on Spartans. Happy birthday, Mom. I love you. You're the best. I hope you have a wonderful day. I will call you later if you're listening to this in the morning. It's a weird thing about starting a podcast. Your mom listens to all of them. You're like, oh, I hope I don't say anything weird or anything that would embarrass you. Um, But no, I'm just kidding. Happy birthday, mom. I will call you later. On today's show, uh, we're going to talk about Michigan State's win over Indiana. Um, I have plenty of thoughts. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about the offense. Uh, I thought it was a pretty good day for them. Could have been a, a great day, but it ended up being a pretty good day. The defense, obviously not so great. I want to talk a little bit about what went into all of that, all of the screens, why Michigan State plays it the way they do, and just kind of what was going on uh, out there. I had an interesting talk with Joe Bocci after the game just about some specific things uh, that Indiana was doing, uh, and I want to relay those to you and just kind of give some thoughts on that. And then I also want to talk about, I know we usually save uh, Ohio State, the, the game, uh, that is coming up this next week, and I usually save that for Thursday and Friday, but I, I want to talk just a little bit uh, about uh, Ohio State because, you know, it's, uh, I don't know if you saw the spread. It opened up most places right around 20 and a half, 21 and a half in favor of Ohio State, um, and that's a massive number, obviously. So I, I want to talk a little bit uh, about that as well. Not too much. Most of today will be spent on Michigan State, but I do want to talk about Ohio State just a little bit right at the end of the show, probably half a segment or so. So that is the plan for today's show. Thanks so much uh, to all of you for tuning in. As always, the numbers are just really outstanding and growing and growing and growing, and I, I can't thank you guys enough for checking out this show. Reminder to rate, review, and subscribe. If you don't subscribe to the podcast, subscribing is the easiest way to get these episodes on your phone every single day. All right, let's talk about Michigan State's win. Okay, so Michigan State homecoming hosts Indiana, uh, a team that is always a thorn in the side of Michigan State, always a team that is just keeping the game closer than you always feel like it should be, and a team that generally makes you sweat, sometimes to the very end, sometimes till there's about two or three minutes left. Uh, And once in a blue moon, they do pull it off and and knock off Michigan State. But this was kind of a classic Michigan State versus Indiana game, right? Early, Michigan State is kind of dominating, imposing their will, and just a miss here, a miss there, a little thing here, a little thing there. And instead of it being 21-0 after three drives, it's 7-7. And 
you know, you look back, you're like, wow, Michigan State totally in control of this game, imposing their will in a number of ways, and it's a tie game. And that is incredibly frustrating, and it's I don't know, emblematic of Michigan State football in a lot of ways. Um, I think I tweeted out, well, Michigan State dominated a first quarter and is in a dogfight that they shouldn't be in. Sounds familiar. Or that's the first time that's ever happened, right? It's like, yeah, that's uh, it's kind of the way we, we go around here. It's the, the modus operandus, if you will. And so this thing played out a lot like uh, a lot of these games have in the past. And, you know, we talked about that spread, 14 points. Uh, I wrote about it, uh, and I talked about how I thought Indiana was kind of being undervalued because they got absolutely waxed by Ohio State and looked less than impressive uh, against Ball State in their season opener. And, you know, I talked how they have really good skill players, and we saw that. Wapfillier is a really good player. Uh, Hale is a really big physical guy who's a good downfield receiver. Hendershot, good tight end. Stevie Scott's a good back and can get out of the backfield and make catches and make plays down the field. And Michael Penix Jr. is a difference maker. Um, I don't know. I guess statistically, I understand the speculation of why Peyton Ramsey was who they would stick with. Uh, But everyone who's seen Peyton Ramsey play and watch Michael Penix play even a little bit, you understand there's just a different ceiling with that team. It's just a different type of offense. Not to say that, you know, Peyton Ramsey couldn't have done some of the things that Penix was doing, but like that kid can freaking play. Mike Penix Jr. can absolutely play. He's a red shirt freshman and he's going to be a freaking problem in the big 10 for a couple of years. Um, And I don't even think we got to see how dynamic of an athlete he can be because he can do that as well. So I, I tried to get that out there as much as I could. You know, Indiana's a good team. They're, they were ranked, I think, 32nd in SP Plus going into the game. I think they're 36th, 34th coming out of it. Not a major change. Um, I think SP Plus had it as a six-point game, six- or seven-point game. And, you know, that's kind of how it settled in, right? 40-31, to 31, yes, the late touchdown wasn't, you know, it gets tough to factor in that fluky, right? But Michigan State, you know, Brian Lewerke goes down at the one intentionally. Michigan State plays it out for a field goal when they probably would have scored a touchdown. I mean, that's that game, that type of game. You know, it's a 38-31 type of game, somewhere right in there, a seven-point win. And so the the advanced numbers kind of had that one nailed. And yeah, I just didn't, I, I guess I got why Indiana was being undervalued, but uh, I tried to tell you guys as much as I could that Indiana was a good team, and we saw that. And that's not to sort of excuse uh, it being that close. I think there were too many mistakes made by Michigan State, too many execution issues. But I don't think you should walk away from that game being like, how the hell, like, we barely beat Indiana. What the hell are we even, like, I can't even believe, like, Indiana's good. It's a good team. They're going to beat some teams this year. They, If they didn't play in the Big Ten East, I've said this before, I think they're like an eight-win type football team. They're, again, mid-30s, high-30s, and SP+. Plus. They're a good team. And sometimes uh, when you play a good team uh, with a bunch of talent that plays really well and they have a really 
good game plan that we cannot underestimate that, that their offensive game plan and the way they executed it, their process was super smart. And they played awesome. Indiana played really, really well. And Michigan State played solid. They were all right. Overall, as an entire team, they played pretty good. And when you're pretty good against a team that's a good team and they play really well, like you're going to have to scrap out a win. And that's... You know, that's what I'm sort of taking from this. I'm not super discouraged. I'm actually more encouraged coming out of this game. Um, but the, the the stock is, I think, too low now on Michigan State. And we're seeing that uh, with the betting line that came out versus Ohio State, which we'll talk about. But I think people are kind of down on this Michigan State team. Uh, and I think if you're down on this Michigan State team, you're not paying uh, close enough attention. They're a good team. They're, they're a really good team. Uh, I don't think they're a top 10 team. And I've said this before. I think they certainly have the capability to be a top 15-ish type team. That is a threat to win certainly nine games, maybe 10. And that's like, that's a really good team. Um, and if, if this was any other year, honestly, if this was any other year and it wasn't this Ohio State team, I would feel comfortable saying Michigan State has a good shot to win the Big Ten. It just so happens that they might have a damn Goliath in their way uh, coming up this weekend. Like, it's a good team. You got a good team. And like, just look at it. The defense is still one of the nation's very best. If you want to jump off the bandwagon of this defense, given the totality of what they've done over the last season and a half, then do it. But I'm not anywhere near that. And I don't think you should be either. They're still number two in SP plus still way up there in a bunch of efficiency metrics. They're number six, I think in yards per play against even factoring that in and Indiana went for 5.1 yards per play. Think like how bad that game was for the defense. Indiana went for 5.1 yards per play. Their season average is 5.4. Michigan state held them under their season average in yards per play that game. That's not, I mean, it's, it's bad. It's 5.1. It's like, that's not what you want. Michigan state's 3.8 this year in yards per play. But last year for the entire season, Michigan state's defense gave up 4.4 yards per play. And they were one of, if not the best defenses in the entire country. And so far they're way under that this season, even factoring in what Indiana just did. And what they did was possess the ball a ton, move it, very consistently, very methodically, in a very specific way that was incredibly frustrating. And I think if you're going to take that tiny little sample size of 20 to 25 plays and try to discount all the good things this defense has going for it, I think you're just misguided and wrong. And so, yeah, they got a great defense, one of the best in the country. They've got an improving offense. They're up to 62 in SP+. They're like 54th or 48th, somewhere in there, and yards per play. Um, which is a weighted down a little bit because Northwestern, the the last eight plays, they got like negative seven yards, something like that, um, which probably would bring them into the high 40s. Honestly, like the margins are that thin that they're like 54th now, they'd be 40th or something if you just wipe out those two drives with the backups in. You can't really do that, but so you got an elite defense, a pretty good offense that is honestly every single week taking steps forward and, and getting better. That could be a, a good offense by season's end. And you got a special teams that's kind of, 
I don't know, stuck in the mud a little bit on the wrong side of variance. I think some bad luck, certainly, but has good enough specialists to be a really good special teams unit. And you've got a crap ton of experience. You've got almost everything you would want in a college football team, except for maybe some like super elite high end talent, like top of the first round NFL guys. That's all they're missing. (laughs) Really, that's all they're missing. You add in like two of those guys, and this is one of like the 10 best teams in the country for sure. If you had one of those guys at like a, an appropriate position, a position of need, if they had like a first round left tackle, if Jeff, Jack Conklin was back on this team somehow, like, man, it's a good team. And so I don't want you guys to be frustrated by the fact that it was close for Cindy. there's a lot of good things to take out of it. And I will tell you some of those more than I just did uh, here in just a minute. Okay, so I will talk about more specifics in the defense in a little bit. Uh, some of the stuff I was talking with Pachi about that I want to pass along to you. But I do want to spend a little bit more time talking about some specifics of that game and what went really well for Michigan State offensively. Um, I thought Brian Lewerke was pretty good. I think this is the longest stretch of consistently pretty good play uh, that we've seen out of him in his entire career. He's uh, like, I don't put a ton of stock into quarterback rating because it's just a measurement of numbers, uh, statistics instead of actual play. Uh, but as you know, his ratings way up and it's hard to have a consistently high quarterback rating and put up good numbers and be a bad quarterback and play bad. So there's some correlation there. It's not the end. I'll be all his QBR was like 85 this game, 85 or 86. He's the, I think third highest graded quarterback in the Big Ten uh, from Pro Football Focus. That was before this game. It might go up. Justin Fields is first, and then um, I think Al- uh, Cone over at uh, Wisconsin was number two, and he was really close to Lewerke, and Cone was really bad this weekend. So Lewerke might be the second best Pro Football fo- pro football Focus quarterback in the conference, and I think he's been mostly sharp. He um, does this thing where he <laughs> misses really badly, uh, a couple of times every single game, and you're just like, what in the hell was that? What? What? But it's just, uh, it's like that every single time, and then literally a play later, <laughs> throw a dime, <laughs> like 20 yards down the field, hit someone in stride, make a great read, something like that. Um, and you're just like, man, if he could just, and he's done it more consistently this year, stitching together those plays and avoiding the the miss throws. Um, but if you could just keep stitching those together, like if he plays a game, if he can have like a three or four game stretch where he's just locked in and not missing any throws at all and, and doing all the other stuff he's been doing, uh, it, it's tough to like play quarterback much better than that. Like he was really good. He was, he was good. And if he would have hit Cody white appropriately in stride those two times, if he would have maybe taken a little bit off of that throw to Anthony Williams, uh, if he would have made a, a couple better reads on some zone read stuff, like he would have been marvelous. He would have been spectacular. It would have been perfect. He would have thrown for like 400 yards and four touchdowns and would have had a QBR of 98 and would have been the highest graded quarterback in the conference this week. Um, he just hasn't consistently done it to that extreme level, but he's been really good, consistently really good, uh, and that's big. Uh, it's how, how long has it been since anyone has wondered uh, about him in the sense that we were last season or this off season? Can we get the old Lewerke back? 
Can we get 2017 Lewerke? Is his confidence gone? Remember that terrible, awful report from someone who is just dynamite on the beat uh, this summer that uh, everyone had lost confidence in Lewerke. He lost confidence in Rocky Lombardi uh, was expected to take over at some point this season. Remember that report? Yeah, that that didn't really pan out, did it? No, I don't. I don't think it did. And it's been a long time since anyone's really asked that kind of question. Probably uh, the Tulsa game was the last time, right? So we've been about a month here of, of pretty damn good quarterback play, um, and that's encouraging. He's uh, a good player, and he's a really smart, cerebral kid. And you can watch it in the way he's processing the game. Uh, he's doing some really good stuff, and I'm going to write about him, uh, I think, today, and then I'll have more stuff in the film room. Uh, but he's just doing some really excellent next-level quarterbacking, and he's honestly saving his best, playing his best in the red zone, which is huge, dynamite. Um, the worries I had about this team in plus territory in the red zone, there certainly were some in the early portions of the season. I wasn't jumping off the bandwagon yet. I wasn't on the ledge worried that this team wasn't going to be able to finish drives. And I just don't really have those concerns right now. Uh, Part of it is Brad Salem is doing a really, really good job calling plays in that area of the field. Uh, They've reincorporated the tight end. They do a lot of really creative things to free guys up. A lot of rub combinations that are not like blatant, obvious offensive pass interference, but just designing routes with the appropriate timing to look good, look clean, look legal, and get in the way and free up space. And they did that uh, a couple of times this game. They did that against Northwestern, and it's been really, really effective for them. And Matt Seibert's emergence as a red zone target and a consistent catcher of the football has been really nice. Daryl Stewart's doing a good job. And all the other pieces around them, the guys running the, the rub routes, Noah Davis did a good job. Matt Dotson had a good one on Daryl Stewart's first or uh, second touchdown, I think. I forget. It doesn't matter. One of Daryl Stewart's touchdowns, Cybert had a really nice uh, route that just totally cleared open Stewart. That sort of stuff and the way Lewerke is throwing the ball, navigating the pocket, accuracy, timing, precision, being smart, making good decisions in that area of the field, like that's been awesome. That's been a really great revelation over the last few weeks. Um, and, you know, if he, if he misses a few throws between the 20s, misses a big play here or there, you live with that for the production that you're getting in the red zone with him uh, because he's just been honestly playing his best best football in the red zone the last few weeks. And that's uh, really good to see. Other than that, um, a couple other takeaways I had. I'm not totally finished with my rewatch I'm about halfway through. As time of recording, I'll finish it. But um, there's a lot of really good, interesting stuff going on with the offense. Um, They're incorporating new formations, new little tweaks here and there, which are really creative and leave me optimistic about Brad Salem and his ability to install new things, build on concepts, and call a game. Um, Like I said, his red zone play calling has been really good the last couple of weeks. And I think he's really starting to find his footing uh, outside of that fourth down play, which it's just like, I, there's not a great explanation for it. There's no, there's no excusing it outside of that. I thought he called, called a really good game. Um, they ran some inverted veer, which they finally started setting up, which is basically 
uh, inverted veer is a zone read flipped is the easiest way to think about it. In a zone read, the running back goes up the middle, the quarterback threatens the edge, and inverted veer, the running back or receiver, the speed guy threatens the edge, and the quarterback reads and goes up the middle, and it generally all goes play side. Like zone read, running back goes left, quarterback goes right. Inverted veer, running back goes right, quarterback goes middle, right, kind of play side, uh, inside zone. So that's what inverted veers. But they ran a couple of inverted veers. They gave one to Larice Nelson and got five yards. They kept one for Lewerke. Um, and I don't have the, the tracking yet on it, how much he gained, but it was a really nice gain. Um, so they started incorporating that and like, those are inverted veers. Like you remember those Tim Tebow teams in Florida that just, he killed everyone running up the middle. It's because they ran inverted veer with Tim Tebow and Percy Harvin. It's like as good as you can run inverted veer in the history of college football. Um, but that sort of stuff is really cool and exciting to see. And you can build off that. And everyone's like, oh, jet motion, jet motion, jet motion, jet sweep, jet sweep, blah. Like, that's why you do it. So you can run inverted veer off it. And so you can run play action off it. And so you can run all these different things. And you can run sweeps and they work. And Michigan State showed a lot more of that, was more consistent with that approach and built off it. And they just keep doing that. They install these things. You see it. You see the next iteration of it. You see the counter of it. And they're just building and building and building. And I, I think... They've got a nice playbook now. I like their playbook. I like the plays they run. I like the way they're going about it. They're doing a good job throwing uh, on first down on occasion, uh, mixing up formations. I talked last week a lot about how they were you know, running more out of 11, passing more out of 12, keeping teams off balance. That's uh, a big step forward as well. So there's a lot of really positive signs with this offense, with the play calling, with the schematics. Um I'd love to see them incorporate more tempo. That's something a lot of people have talked about. You can't just run the two-minute drill the entire game. Um, we saw what happens when your defense gets left out on the field for 12-play drives and starts to get tired. Uh, teams that shouldn't be beating you end up beating you and getting ahead of you and putting up numbers on a, a defense they shouldn't. Um, so that's sort of why you can't just run blazing fast the entire time. But I would love to see the two-minute drive tempo used more often in non-two-minute situations. I'm certainly all for that. Can't do it all the time. Michigan State kind of operates at two speeds right now. Uh, you know, normal pace and then a little slower. Their normal pace is some tempo. They do go quick at times, and then they go a little slower later in the games, um, middle of the game. If they go three and out, sometimes they'll slow it down the next time to try to give their defense a breather, stuff like that. I would love to see them add a third tempo, hyper speed, whatever you want to call it, and mix that in more in standard situations than end of half situations. So there's a lot of promising stuff there on that side of the ball. And that's cool. That's good to have. And I think, you know, they're 62nd in SP plus as we get further into the season. Like they just put 31 on Northwestern, who's number 15 in SP plus defense. Like go look at what Wisconsin did to Northwestern. Should make you feel pretty good about what Michigan State did. They put 34, should have been 38 on Indiana, who's a top 30-ish SP plus defense. Like they're having good games against good defenses. And that is good. They had like 6.3 yards per play against Indiana. That's really good. 66.3 yards per play. Uh, it's like a top 30-ish yards per play, Indiana, top 30-ish defense. That's a good performance. So a lot of things to be positive about with them on that side of the ball. All right, let's uh, put a pin in the offense, and we're going to have to talk about some defense because it wasn't fun, was it? 
watching that defense against Indiana. But there's uh, some, believe it or not, some sound logic behind what Michigan State was trying to accomplish and some spots where they just got flat out beat. And we'll talk about both of those uh, in just a minute here. Okay, so I understand that that was a really frustrating defensive performance to watch. Just watching them run the same play over and over and over and over and over and over again, and it works for seven yards, eight yards, every single time, and you feel like there's no adjustment at all because it's just not getting stopped. And I was even like, from someone who's watching that, like, what is going on, like, tactically standpoint, I was getting frustrated because I was like, where's the counterpunch? There is clear that they're doing this, and why aren't you actively countering it? And that's a criticism I've had about Michigan State's defense over the years. Not very many things to criticize about this defense, but their rigidity and when they're getting attacked and killed in the flats, the inability to flip that quickly is something that has been consistent over the years. And this was kind of an extreme version of that. And first you need to credit Indiana's players. Uh, Penn X was throwing the ball really well. The receivers were catching everything. His throws are all really accurate and they're catching it and going upfield. And here's something that's super underrated. Their receivers blocked the hell out of that game. They were awesome. And, that's something that that's that, that's hard to replicate. That's hard to get that sort of blocking from your receivers consistently. And I think they did enough good enough job to sort of distributing it. Everyone sort of got their touches and everyone it was like a thing like, all right, I'm catching mine, you block for me, then you catch yours, I'll block for you, then he catches his, we block for him, and then it comes back to me and you block for me. It was just kind of that thing that they're feeding off each other and everyone's like going out like, Yep, we got this. Uh and so, you know, they got it rolling and credit them. Uh, for that credit them for sticking with it until it was stopped which some coaches don't have the uh the insight the foresight the wherewithal to do good offense doesn't have to be wacky doesn't have to be this that the other cloud of dust misdirection smoke and mirrors look at all this creativity look at all this crazy stuff we're doing sometimes good offense is just running good plays and not stopping running good plays until the defense proves it can stop them and that's what Indiana did. Uh, and I talked with Joe Bacci after the game, and we were talking about um, specific constraints, specific binds that Michigan State has put in by that play because it's something that over the years has given them issues, attacking the perimeter quickly with bubble screens. Um, and basically what's going on there, like formationally Indiana did a really good job. They would motion a lot. They would motion into these trip sets. And when they motion into these trip sets, Michigan State's check from that is not to bring that defensive back all the way across the formation. You bring them up and then you kind of shift around, like an around the horn shift. And the, what ends up happening is the linebacker goes out a little bit. So that immediately creates an advantage for Indiana um, where they can have four guys, because if they snap it at the appropriate time, they can have four guys to Michigan State's three out there. And then if everyone makes their block, it's open for 10 yards until somebody else can get over there. And so they were doing that. And D'Antonio even said after the game, they kind of outformationed us at times. That's what he was referring to when they would motion into these trip sets and get a guy over there and essentially end up with four on three. And they did that a lot and credit them. Um, I, you know, Michigan State adjusted to it later uh, than you would have liked. Uh, there was a lot of... Um, complaints about them staying in the 4-3, not going to a 4-2, not going to nickel. 
And what the, the main bind is that those plays put Michigan State in is those safeties have to remain in a place where they can have run support and play that bubble screen. It, you, they're kind of, I don't know, stuck between a rock and a hard place because if you commit that safety down to the line of scrimmage or commit an extra defensive back down in the line of scrimmage, that's one less person that is able to fill and run support. And what happens is that leaves the Sam linebacker in the spot where it's usually the Sam linebacker in the spot where they have to have their run responsibilities primarily and then get out to the perimeter quickly to make a tackle. And if the receivers make their blocks, which they were all night, and there's no sort of outside in leverage, like forcing the the runner back into towards the pursuit, like everyone, right? The screen goes out, defensive line pursues down the line, the linebackers pursue down the line parallel with the line towards the sideline. And if there's no force contain back towards the middle of that player, then he's getting upfield. And what you have is basically angled pursuit from the linebacker is what has to make that play instead of getting them to cut back inside at the line of scrimmage and they're getting hit for a one or two yard gain instead of a seven or eight yard gain. And that's just kind of what kept happening and happening. And if you overcommit to stopping that bubble screen, uh, which I think Michigan State did at times, you kind of saw them get gashed for run plays that they don't ne- normally, norm- ordinarily. Wow, I just tried to say normally and ordinarily, ordinarily uh, that they don't normally get gashed for, especially like a, just an off tackle run where there's usually a linebacker there ready to make the play, but just because they're kind of getting out of sorts and out of position and out of formation due to these plays, there were spots there for Indiana to pick up ground uh, on the ground. And basically, for this offense to work, and I'm running a little bit long here, we're not going to talk about Ohio State today. I'm just going to keep talking about this. For this offense to work, if you're going to bubble screen your way down the field, You're going to have to go on a 12-play drive. You're going to have to go 10 plays, 80 yards, you know, six, seven, eight yards at a time, and you're going to have to, every single time, complete a bubble screen, make three effective blocks, two or three effective blocks with your wide receivers on defensive backs, and sort of maneuver your way through that little wash, that little traffic to get the appropriate yardage. And you have to do that over and over and over and over again. And that is as easy as Indiana made it look Saturday night. That is harder to do than running inside zone read, inside zone for six, seven yards, hitting play action off of that um, your way down the field, right? And it's way harder to complete 10 screens and have them all go for eight yards to make it 80 yards than it is to have a safety overcommit to a screen. You hit a deep shot over his head for an 80-yard touchdown. That's that's the math of it. That's just how Michigan State is going to play that type of thing. They're not going to let you gash them up the middle for running plays, and they're not going to, as much as they can, let you hit deep shots over their head because you're bubble screening them to death. If the option is let them complete 8 to 10 bubble screens on a drive or let them take shots down the field, they're going to let them keep that underneath stuff. Uh, we saw it even while they're doing that. Yeah, guys just start cheating up. That's that's what happens. You complete four or five of those effectively like that. Safeties start cheating up. Linebackers start cheating over. Run lanes open up. Deep shots open up. Uh, and we saw that a little bit. 
Indiana hit some deep shots, and that's because they were setting them up with these plays. And if, you know, it's the same sort of, it's like, just think of it like play action, like a standard play action. If you can do enough to get eyes where they're not supposed to be looking, get guys to forego their appropriate responsibilities, then you can exploit it. And that was Indiana's game plan, and it was a really smart game plan. Uh, and I was talking with Bocce, and he just said, yeah, like they just made so many good calls. And he said every time they would have a blitz called, Indiana would have the perfect counter ready to go. Like he at one time thought maybe they were stealing signs because they were so ready to counter these things. And I'm sure they'll look back on and see if there's tendencies that they have, or maybe they'll switch up signals or something like that. Um but if you're getting caught in these blitzing situations with a zone blitz and you have less guys committed to the defensive backfield and they're still completing these quick passes, that's going to go for yardage. And it did. And Indiana just, they called a, a brilliant game plan. They stuck to it. They adjusted and tweaked it really well. And Michigan State didn't do a good enough job adjusting to it. Uh, they also missed some tackles. They also didn't get off blocks well enough. Um, you saw late in the game, forget who it was, maybe Gervin, maybe, no, it was, it was Trey Person. Um, one of those plays went for like a yard after they, they're going for six, seven, six, eight, seven, ten, twelve, and then one goes for a yard. You know why it went for a yard? Because Trey Person got off a block and made a play. And there just wasn't enough of that going on. And at some point, despite the schematics that are going on, um, despite all this crap, the frustration, the exhaustion, you got to get off a block and make a play. And there's not a lot of time to do that for those defensive backs. Think of it. The pass is out there. That block is held for one second and the guy's gone. You have no time to get off that block, but you got to do it. Sometimes you just got to do it. And they didn't do it enough. And they missed tackles. And that can't happen. Josh Butler, I think, is probably their best tackling defensive back. Uh, Got nicked up, according to D'Antonio. Seemed like he got banged up. Um, at some point, and Kalon Gervin was playing for him the last few series. Um, that's tough to lose your best tackling corner in a game where your corners need to tackle. And so I think it was a combination of a number of things. Indiana played really well. They had a really good game plan. Michigan State didn't do quite enough to adjust well to it. And Michigan State's players didn't play well enough. That's it. That's the formula. And even despite all that, right, kind of like a perfect storm of crap, for the defense, uh, Indiana barely scored over 30, which is a nightmare in East Lansing, but it's something that happens all the time all over college football, <laughs> right? It happens. Um, they only gave up 30, not 50. Uh, they gave up, you know, less than Indiana's season average on yards per play, held them below their season average on yards per play, and they eventually got stops at the end. They got two big stops. The offense kind of bailed them out, and they won. They didn't play well. Your defense had an off night, and you won. And if I would have told you that about a month ago, two months ago, I think you would have been pretty damn happy with it. If I would have said, hey, there's a game, Michigan State's defense, they're just going to get shredded. They're going to have nothing. The entire game, they're going to be out of sorts. They're going to get gashed and gashed and gashed. They're going to give up 31 points, and Michigan State's going to win because the offense just makes a crap ton of plays. You would have been like, I don't believe you. You're a liar, Will. But if that happens, that's awesome. And that happened. And now you regroup, 
The offense has its confidence moving forward. The offense is playing well. Uh, and you know, like hell, that defense is going to rebound. Yeah, they're playing the best team they're going to play all season coming up this game. The best offense they're going to see. Uh, I'd be willing to bet that they're going to be pretty fired up and ready to bounce back from that performance. And so, you know, maybe take that as the silver lining. You got your tail kicked in a little bit on defense against Indiana instead of Wisconsin or Ohio State. That little humble pie, right? A little serving of humble pie. Um, and now you got a group that is mad as hell, talented as hell, refocused and ready to go to Columbus. And there's not a better time in the world for them to bounce back and have an outstanding game than this weekend because they're going to have to be at their absolute very best to keep Michigan State in this game this weekend. All right, that's going to do it for today's show. Thanks so much for joining me on Locked on Spartans. Remind you to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Do this every single day, five days a week, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, half an hour-ish shows. Sometimes I go long. Half an hour-ish shows every single day on Michigan State football, and we'll eventually get to basketball and basketball. Um, we'll be back tomorrow. Um, who's going to be on tomorrow? Uh, Stephen Brooks. Stephen Brooks is going to be on tomorrow, I think. I haven't told him yet, but I think he's going to be on. Uh, Stephen Brooks from 247sports.com is going to be on tomorrow. Uh, Sheehan will be on later in the week. Hepner will also be on later in the week. Uh, and then I'll get someone from Ohio State as well to uh, help preview that game down the road. So big week coming up. A lot of things to talk about. A lot of excitement. Very interesting game coming up this weekend. So be sure to stick with me here on Locked on Spartans all week long. We'll be back tomorrow morning with another episode and we will see you then.